Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I am delighted to welcome young Australian writer Hannah Bent to Books, Books, Books to talk about her fantastic debut novel, When Things Are Alive, They Hum, which was published by Altimo Press in August this year and is causing quite a buzz in literary circles. Hannah is a young writer and director who grew up in Hong Kong, where she's back living now, and that's where her novel is largely set. She has a Bachelor of Arts in Fine Art, Film and Photography from Central St. Martin's School of Art and Design in London. She did further postgraduate study in directing and screenwriting at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School, and she has a Master's in Creative Writing from the University of Technology, Sydney. In 2013, Hannah received the Ray Kopp Award for an Emerging Writer for this novel when it was a work in progress. It's been getting some fantastic reviews, including my favourite one so far from The Australian, which described it as a wise, wondrous celebration of life. Hannah, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you so much and thank you for that generous introduction. Would you like to start by reading an extract from your beautiful book? Absolutely. Harper. A post-it note is a bright and colourful square of paper, useful for saying things that are hard to say when someone is face-to-face with the person they love. In my desk, I have a drawer full of post-it notes in lots of different colours, yellow, pink, orange, blue and green. Even though I feel a bit breathless, I get out of bed because I have an important message to write. I decide to choose blue because this is Marlowe's favourite colour. But when I go to take the square of paper out of the drawer, I have a messy feeling in my brain. My thoughts are tangled in knots. Pink is a colour for love, orange is a colour for happiness, and yellow is my favourite colour because it is the colour of white paws, egg tarts, delicious and sweet. Blue and green are the sadder colours, blue like the clothes that white paw has never stopped wearing since my mum died and green like the velvet chair that my dad sits in when he has his serious face on and wants to be alone. My fingers touch all the post-it notes. Making decisions is hard, especially when I have the nerves in my body. I practice deep breathing like Waipaw taught me. With my eyes closed, I see Marlowe the very first moment she arrived home from London in the United Kingdom. Her hair was messy and her face looked tired because of swollen eye bags. She took my hand inside hers and I noticed that her touch was empty and loose. Sometimes the body can be present without the spirit. That's what Waipaw says. I think this is true. Eyes open, my thoughts are clear now and I choose a pink post-it note. I write my message. We are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep by William Shakespeare from The Tempest said by Prospero the magician, 
first read to me by our dad, James Eve, who explained these words as something to do with the dream of life. Love from your sister, Harper Minghua Eve. I wiggle all my toes and all my fingers. For the first time in a long time, they feel warm. This is because I'm getting better. I always knew in my heart that I would. Anna, thank you. Could you tell us what your beautiful book is about, please? My book is about two sisters, Harper and Marlo. Um, Harper has a congenital heart disorder and she lives with Down syndrome. And when it's discovered that she needs a heart transplant but is denied one by the medical establishment, her sister Marlo comes from overseas to be by her side and together they go on a journey in search of a heart. And ultimately, Marlo has to confront how, go, how far she'll go to save her sister. Tell me a little bit about Harper's and Marlo's background, about their childhood. Harper and Marlo um, both grew up in Hong Kong. Their father was a um, businessman who ran a leather shoe factory. Um, they live with their uh, grandmother, Wai Po, and they had a mother who died uh, when they were young, and she was a... Um, a well-known pianist and that that was really a huge incident in their lives and affected them both very differently and is something that um, throughout the novel is um, a huge part of their journey and why they make certain decisions that they do. And they were both very young when she died weren't they? It was um, 17 years ago in the book so I think Marlo was eight, and I think little Harper was only about three, uh, three and a half, is that right? Yes, so five years different, sorry, yes, three. And when we meet them in the book now, I think that um, Marlo is 25 and Harper is 20. Absolutely. And as you say, they, they grew up after their mother died, they grew up in Hong Kong with their dad and with their maternal grandmother, Wai Po, and another of the characters in the book who um, is a bit of a side character but interesting is Irene, who's dad's current girlfriend. Let's set the scene a little bit more. The novel opened with Marlo in London. What's she doing there? She's studying a PhD in entomology and her specialty is lepidoptery. So that's the study of butterflies. Where did you get the idea to write about somebody who's, who's doing a PhD in the study of butterflies? Look, that didn't come to me first. The very first scene I wrote was um, a scene in childhood where uh, Marlo tries to catch a butterfly. And I didn't understand where this was going or what it meant. And I just, I write in a very intuitive way. And I just kept following these scenes that kept coming to me. And I noticed a thread. Um, the butterflies just kept showing up. And um, I love butterflies anyway. I mean, I just, I love insects. My dad had a, a big garden when I was growing up as well. So I was quite happy to follow that tangent. And eventually I studied, I didn't study, I, I shadowed a uh, entomologist at the University of Sydney who was doing um, his master's and I just spent heaps of time annoying him. <laughs> I hung out was with that him. for the purposes of writing this book or that was something <laughs> you'd done earlier? No, it was for the purposes of this book and I... Um, I hung out with him in his lab. I went with him to his bug meetings. I just annoyed him, pestered him. <laughs> I had great fun and uh, learned a lot from him. So when we meet Marlo, she's 25. She's been in London for three years. She's doing her PhD and she's, in, she's right at the end of the PhD. In one month's time, she's going to be defending her thesis. She's also in a lovely relationship with a man called Oliver. They've been together for about three years. Tell us a bit about Oliver and about their relationship. 
Oli, Oli is lovely. Oli um, is a real steady kind of, um, I think in one point she describes him as a tree and he gives her roots. When she feels like she's going up into the air, he brings her back down and he's a, um, a real love of hers. But of course, Marlo has, um, she's very rational and she has, um, because of the death of her mother, issue with letting herself feel certain emotions. She likes to stay in control of them and is kind of wary of deep feelings. So um, as much as he expresses her love for her, she struggles with doing the same for him, although she loves him dearly. And she does describe him quite early on as being my perfect match. Yes, he studies the reproductive cycle of butterflies. So they have a lot in common. They're, they're, it's um, very much a marriage of mind and, um, and you know, they, they share a lab and they, they love the work that they do together as well. When we meet her, she's just received a call from her father and also a letter from Harper. What do they tell her? Harper tells um, Marlo that she's sick and um, that she, her heart is sore. And it's not because she's she's not in love. She loves um, her boyfriend, Louis, very much, but that she's very, very sick and she wants Marlo to come home. And her father subsequently calls her and tells her that um, this time it's it's quite bad and and she needs to come back. This is relating to her, her congenital heart problems. Absolutely, it is. Let's talk now for a moment about Harper. So I, I should mention one of the really beautiful things about this book is the way that each alternate chapter is written by one or other of the sisters. So we read a chapter by Marlow, then a chapter by Harper. Tell us a little bit about Harper. What's she like? Oh, I loved writing her. She's a real joy to be with. She lives from her heart and she's so intuitive and um, she's a writer. I think she believes that she's kind of got a little bit of Shakespeare's magic in her. And I, I quite agree. She's um, she's writing a story which is, which is autobiographical and based on her life. But it's also about a girl in, in quest of a, a plum heart, as she likes to call it. Um, Harper is magical and she sees the world with a sense of wonder and um, she's she loves the arts. She's very vocal and she's not afraid to say what she feels. There's this quality to her, I think, that um, is captivating and, and that her sister Marlo finds hard to understand. She describes her as magic at times, doesn't she? And there's another line. I think we learn a lot about Harper through Mar through what we see and through reading the chapters that Har are written in Harper's voice, but also from Marlowe's descriptions of her. At one point, Marlowe says she was the embodiment of happiness, and we get lovely descriptions of her, how much Harper loved music. When she was a little three-year-old, she loved twirling around to music. We talk about how she looks up at the clouds and she, she sees shapes. We look through Marlowe's eyes. She, she's looking through her window in London thinking, well, this is a pretty view, but Harper would appreciate it a lot more. One thing that comes through very, very strongly is Harper's great capacity for joy. Let's talk a little bit now about the relationship between Marlowe and Harper. So there's a five-year age difference. Marlowe's the oldest by five years. And at one point in one of Marlowe's chapters, she talks about how close they are and she says, if she were seated next to me, I wouldn't know where she began and where I ended. One other thing I think we should mention, and that is that when their mother was dying, Marlo, who was then only eight and a half, the little sister was three and a half, Harper, 
Marlow promised her mother on her deathbed that she would always look after Harper. So with that background, could you tell us a little bit about the relationship between Marlow and Harper? Absolutely. Um, when Harper was first born, I think Marlow was a little afraid of her, not because necessarily of her disability, but because of the way that everyone was reacting to her. How did their mother react to Harper's birth? Oh, I don't think she could accept it. It was a great shock. Um, she didn't know she was pregnant with a, a child that had Down syndrome. And um, culturally, I think that period, time period in Hong Kong, um, having a disability is not something that was openly spoke of. It, it, it's, it wasn't something that people, I mean, you wouldn't see very many. I, mean, I grew up in Hong Kong, so I can say this from um my point of view, but it, it, you wouldn't really see a disabled person or person with a disability walking around on the street. So it was very much something that was kept in secret. And often if a child had a disability um, and was born into a family, they were sent to an orphanage. The mother had a lot of difficulty accepting Harper when she was born. And um, she, because I think the mother was this award-winning pianist who, um, really valued her status and um, really wanted um, her, uh, Marlo to follow in her footsteps. But of course, Marlo was much more rational and went the other way. She, I think her, her plan was for Harper to follow. And, and when she realized Harper had Down syndrome, in her mind, she didn't think that Harper would be able to achieve anything. So um, when she died, I think... Marlo really took her place. She did She did say to Marlo, take care of your sister before she died. And um, Marlo was doing this anyway, I think, um, because of the family dynamics. And so Marlo fe felt a strong sense of responsibility to Harper, but also um, a, a very deep um, appreciation of her sister and fascination with her sister and, and sometimes jealousy. I mean, she would look at the way her sister would engage with her mother playing the piano, something that to her was very abstract and she couldn't understand. And um, she could see the way that Harper would move to the music and, and want to be like that, but couldn't. Um, so, and, you know, I think Harper is the yin to Marlowe's yang. They're, they're like, two sides of the same coin. How does Harper feel about Marlowe? What do we what do we say of the relationship from her perspective? Oh, she she loves Marlowe, I think, the most out of everyone. Although she adores Louis and she's madly in love with him. The love is different. It, it's very close. And um, she sees Marlowe as a good friend or sometimes as a mother figure. Um, she sees in Marlowe maybe what Marlowe can't see in herself. She does see the the depth Marlowe has that Marlowe is too afraid to access, and she sees Marlowe's beauty, and um, her sister's her greatest confidant and someone who makes her feel safe. You mentioned Louis, who of course is the other extremely important relationship in Harper's life. Tell us about Louis and about the relationship between him and Harper, which I have to say is one of my favourite parts of the book. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed them too. They're, they're a great pair. Um, so Harper's much um, further, I think, on the spectrum. She's much more high-functioning. She has a lot more skills, perhaps, that um, you can use in the in the real world. So Lewis has Down syndrome. He um, is a similar age to Harper. He grew up in New York. 
and um, he loves to be on time. He wears many watches and he has a tight schedule that he likes to stick to. <laughs> He's also incredibly charming and deeply madly in love with Harper and as Harper is with him and they share a very beautiful relationship. So we we start the book with Marlo returning to be with Harper and her family because Harper is so unwell. She attends a medical appointment early in the piece with the family. It's the first that there have been many before, but this is the first one she attends. And the professor tells them all that Harper has irreversible damage to her heart and that she needs a heart lung and a heart transplant if she's to survive, but they won't give it to her. Why is that? This is something that happens a lot in real life. They won't give it to her because there is a lack of supply to meet demand, first of all, I have to say this, and that's not something that's changed very much um, in the last few years in real life. Are you speaking just in Hong Kong, Hannah, or generally? Generally, all over. And they also won't give it to her. Their reasons are that she can't follow a complex post-operative drug regime because she's compromised intellectually. Um, you know, she might have a shorter lifespan because of her disability. They have several reasons that they're giving, but ultimately one of the main reasons is because she has Down syndrome and she can't contribute to life in their eyes in the same way that someone who doesn't have a disability could. How does their father respond to being told that? Furious. Absolutely furious. Can't contain his anger. Is just just bursting to exp- like explain the injustice that he sees. And um, he wants to do something about it but feels powerless. I noticed, um, Hannah, you said that this is something that happens a lot in real life and that was something I was wondering about. You mentioned in your acknowledgements the various doctors that you spoke to and the advice you got from them. Did you do much research into this issue of the discrimination against uh, people with disabilities in terms of organ transplants? Look, I did. I'm, I have to preface this by saying I'm not a lawyer and um, I everything that I know has done been done through my research. But it was one of, I remember the, the first time I read an article, I was sitting on top of the number 19 in London reading about a young girl who's denied a heart transplant because of her disability. And I just thought, wow, that, that raises such an interesting ethical dilemma. And... While I was writing, however, I didn't, I had spoken to a lot of doctors and I don't want to um, be saying that, you know, they're bad and they're wrong and they, 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 um, you know, don't know what they're talking about and it's, it's terrible, but, you know, there is prejudice and um, to say that somebody can't contribute to life because of their disability is quite ignorant. Mm. And that, that's what one of the doctors says, isn't it, too? to Harper's father. What about Marlo? What's her response to this news? What does she do when she hears this? I think initially she's she goes into a state of shock because she hasn't dealt with the grief she felt when her mother died. And it's bringing up a lot for her. And she doesn't want to accept that her sister's going to die. And the way she deals with that is by saying to herself that she's going to do everything she can to fix the situation just like she has done before. And um, ultimately that 
gets her in a little bit of trouble. So she does some research and she reads about a woman in the US with Down syndrome who won a legal battle to get a heart and lung transplant. So she initially starts by thinking that um, she'll continue to fight and that this is discriminatory and that she'll she'll fight a legal battle. But then she realises, and I want to come back to something that you said earlier, we have in the book Marlowe realises that Hong Kong is different, that there are deeply entrenched views there about people with disabilities. And I wondered, you've touched on this already a little bit, but I wondered if that was right, if there really are particular views or attitudes in Hong Kong towards people with disabilities. And if there are, why do you think that is the case? I'm talking from personal experience. I'm talking from what I have lived. Your lived experience is that that you live with a a sister who was raised in Hong Kong with you who has Down syndrome, right? Yes, my sister Camilla has Down syndrome and we both grew up in Hong Kong. A resounding um, comment that kept coming up was, your sister has done something terrible in a past life and she's paying back her karmic debts. Um, You know, there's a scene in the book, without giving too much away, where Louis, Louis, sorry, um, stands up and uh, his seat is wiped. That really happened to my sister. Um, There's so many things that, have happened that I haven't included in the book. And I do feel it is a an entrenched uh, view. I think it's changing. I have to say that I think it's changing since I was since I was small. Um, I think people are becoming more aware. You, you do see adults who have a disability in public more working, like in a cafe, for example. That I, there was none of that when I was growing up. And my mum had several experiences my, uh, medically. I mean, my sister was born with a small trachea and the doctor's told my mum, she got very serious bronchitis at one point and the doctors told my mum to don't bother treating her, um, just let her go. So things like this, wow. you know, it's um, it, it, it was a very much a lived experience of mine. Now, we're not going to go into too much detail because we don't want any spoilers, but a nurse gives Marlo the, the possibility of hope. She tells her that there are doctors in Shanghai who would be prepared to do the transplant for a large sum of money, I think it's sixty or $65,000. And Marlowe wonders about this and, and asks why there are so many organs available for transplant in China. And, and what is the answer to that? Ultimately, that they come from executed prisoners. What about, so uh, Marlowe gets quite enthusiastic about this idea. She sees this as a way to save Harper. How does Harper herself feel about having a transplant? Harper doesn't want a transplant. She believes that her heart is her heart and that if you take her heart out, you're going to remove a part of her that loves what it loves and loves Lewis, loves Marlo, loves her family. She wants to keep her heart. And because of her views about death and the way that she's processed her um, grief with her mother dying, I mean, she believes that when you die, you're in everything and you don't go, you're still present somehow. And she she converses with her mum in her mind. And um, she she believes, you know, she's, although she doesn't want to accept her death initially, she comes to a point where she becomes okay with it. And she, she believes she'll be in everything and she wants to keep her heart. She's very emphatic about that, isn't it? She, isn't she? She says lovely things like, I like my own heart. I don't need someone else's. I want to keep my own. And I want to get well with my own heart, she tells her father, and she's particularly worried. She has this great love 
for Lewis that she's particularly concerned that if somebody else's heart is put in, that she won't feel the same love for him. Mm. Hannah, there are two complex ethical issues that arise at this point. The first is the issue about the source of the donor organs, that they come from executed prisoners. And the second is an issue about personal autonomy. I'm going to focus more on the latter. Mm. So at one point, Marlowe says to herself, was I really right? So when she puts in chain actions to try to get a transplant for um, Harper in China, at one point she says to herself, was I really right to go against Harper's wishes and save her life, possibly at the expense of another life? I'm interested in looking at this issue of personal autonomy. And I think what you clearly are raising here is whether merely because Harper has Down syndrome, she should lose the right to make decisions about her own health. And that seems to be to, to be a very significant ethical issue. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? This is a very uh, passionate subject or theme in the book for me because um, when my sister was younger, she had a very strong voice. She was very able to say how she felt and um, and want to be heard. And she often wasn't heard. And I wanted to hear her. And um, I wanted to give her space to be heard when there wasn't that available. So I think subconsciously, that was one of the drivers behind looking at this ethical issue. But also when my sister was around 16, she got encephalitis. And so she lost her ability to speak. And she at one point couldn't move. And um, although she has some of her speech back now, I think I was processing while writing my inability to give her her voice back. And so I was thinking a lot about voice and I am very aware of own voices and I wanted to be very careful of this and be very respectful of this. And I wanted Harper to have agency. I wanted her to be able to say what she wanted. And I ultimately wanted Marlo to listen mm. and show how hard that can be sometimes. Mm if they have such a strong bond and Marla didn't want to let her go, her sister go. And it really, it, it is really kind of the pointy end of that ethical issue, isn't it? Because Marlo believes rightly that it, she'll die, Harper will die if she doesn't have the transplant. And it just really raises that issue. It, even in those circumstances, does the, it, even if you say that maybe Harper didn't completely understand this herself, that she would actually die if she didn't have the transplant, does that give Marlo, her sister, the right to make these life and death decisions for her, overriding her own wishes? Absolutely, well said. <laughs> and, the, and the significance of it, then looking at it from Marlo's point of view, of course, there was also the other point that you have, which is that Marlo promised her mother on her deathbed that she would always look after Harper. And more so to that, that um, Marlo, because she couldn't process her mother's passing and her grief I think she felt she couldn't deal with another death in the family and she was so close to Harper as well so um, I think that felt too much for her to bear and and so I think that in that overrode her logic I mean she's a very logical person and very rational and you know she did think this through but I think her heart took over in the end. Let's talk a little bit more about your sister Camilla. You've dedicated the book to her. She was three years, she is three years older than you. She has Down syndrome and you describe her in your acknowledgements as your muse, 
and one of my greatest loves. There was a lovely piece that you wrote recently for the Sydney Morning Herald about your relationship with Camilla. I just want to read you just a little extract and ask you to talk about it a little bit. You said, I have written a novel inspired by Camilla. While I was writing this novel, I had Camilla's gypsy heart painting above my head. The colour and bright lights kept reminding me to write deeper and deeper until I found meaning and sometimes solace in the words that worked themselves onto my page. Camilla has given me the gift of vision and of courage. Could you tell us about that gypsy heart painting and the significance of it for you? Yes, I, I have it right in front of me. Um, when she gave it to me, I I don't think initially I was conscious of its meaning. And as I wrote, um, I think I went deeper and deeper into that. Camilla, as I said, lost her voice, but then she found it again in her paintings. Her paintings are intricate and beautiful and she's quiet when she's doing them and she's thoughtful and she's brave because, I mean, she's, she, you know, she's lost a lot of her motor skills and, um, you know, to pick up a paintbrush again and teach her hands how to use that is, was wonderful to res- just witness. She's got a resilience, I think, that inspires me a lot and um, really informed my writing. And there's so much each day. I mean, I'm, I, I don't want to say that it's not been difficult. It's been in- incredibly difficult living with my sister, uh, for the majority of writing this book, I, I lived with her and, and you know, the, the person that she's become now is so different from who she was. That was a result of the encephalitis at the age of 16. Yeah, she's 39, uh, 38 now. So, um, and it's it's kind of deteriorating for her a lot. So, um, you know, there was a daily struggle that I was witnessing and that I was kind of being with, alongside with her and... Um, it's very hard to hold space for someone who is going through that. Yet when she sat and she painted, just such color and beauty would come out of her and it would remind me that that's not gone. And um, I think it really did inform my writing. So my sense is that there's a lot of uh, Camilla in Harper, a lot of what you write about, about the twirling with joy and the love of music and the ability to look at clouds and to see shapes. Is, is that right? Is, is there a lot of Camilla in Harper? There is a huge amount of Camilla in Harper. My sister used to be a wonderful performer and um, and she did Romeo and Juliet. She loved Shakespeare. So um, it was really nice to bring that aspect of her to life. And um, my sister was very funny and very outgoing um, and I would often write plays for her when I was smaller and she would act in them, but she would tell me what she wanted to do and what she didn't. So she was very clear. And I wanted Harper to have that same strength as well. So in Harper, are you, in a sense, giving Camilla back her voice? Is Harper saying what you know Camilla would say? I think so. I think I think initially without realising it, that's what I was trying to do. I wondered if Camilla has read your book. I've read it to her. She, she can't... Um, Totally read it anymore. I've read bits to her, and she 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 laughs and she's quiet at times. So I know there's a lot going on, but it's been a really beautiful process to sit with her in that way. You said that you realised a few years into writing the novel that 
you're at some level, you said, exploring the grief I had for the sister I knew before she became ill. In many ways, this novel was important to me as a deep exploration of love, grief, and also hope. Has it helped you to deal with or to manage the grief that you feel about the losses that Camilla has suffered writing this book? Absolutely. I mean, I, I didn't, I desperately didn't want to um, kind of base my first novel on something that's so heavily drawn on an autobiographical element to my life, but it, it happened and um, it was a really, it took me over 10 years to write and it was a really powerful journey. And I think I, I was uh, the last month where I wrote the ending, really finessed the ending. I was heavily pregnant and I, that was really what made me stop. I, I feel that it was really important for me to write something that wasn't dense in, in darkness and just grief because that's not what my sister was and that's not what I've learned from her. I think love and grief are very much linked and the deeper you go into grief, sometimes the deeper you go into love and vice versa. Mm. Um, and so it was really important for me to honour that and to honour the hope that my sister still has and that Harper has and that I carry as, as a result as well. Hannah, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I think this is an exceptional book. It's one of the best debuts I've ever read and uh, one of the most moving novels. So I really wish you all the very best with it. It's not easy releasing a book into the current COVID circumstances, but my sense is that your book is going to do extremely well and I wish you all the very best with it and with your writing generally. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.